morning. So early on in the uh, development of Christianity, Christianity was not understood to be a separate, a religion that was separate from Judaism. It was seen as a sect within Judaism, a Jewish sect within Judaism. So within synagogues and Jewish communities throughout the Roman world at that time, there were Jews who were not Christians and Jews who were Christians. The Jewish Christians, however, continued to take part in Jewish community life and continued to be a part of the Jewish synagogue, along with the Jews who were not Christians. So what began to happen over time was that some, was some internal persecution from the non-Christian Jewish people towards the Jewish Christians. So a lot of what might, we might perceive in Scripture and in today's passage as anti-Semitic is really, uh, it's really, it's not uh, racist comments from one non-Jew uh, uh, to, to someone who's Jewish. It is uh, inter-Jewish squabbling. It is Jewish people uh, debating and fighting with other Jewish people. It's certainly been misused and abused throughout history, but that's really what's going on. Some had faith in Christ as Messiah, others did not. And sometimes non-Christian Jews tried to expel Christian Jews from their synagogues. When the Gospel of John was written, for example, many scholars believe that it was written in part, in part, as a word of encouragement to Jewish Christians who had been excluded or expelled from their synagogue because of their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. We can hear this in places like John chapter 9. It's an, uh, a famous story where Jesus gets in trouble for healing a man born blind and doing so on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees investigate. After getting nowhere in their interview with the man himself, they go to his parents. Is this your son, they ask? And uh, is this the one they say, they, they say was, was born blind? How can he now see? We know he is our son, they answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see or, how, or who healed him, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he can speak for himself. Then John gives us an important detail in the story that tells us He's, uh, that he's made sure, he tells us why he's made sure to do this, include this little detail, um, why it would have been important to his first readers. And so we read in John 9, 22 to 23, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. John likely includes this detail because his readers, later on in the first century, were still facing this kind of persecution. They were being excluded. And to be excluded, it's, it doesn't seem that way to us, but to be excluded for a first century Jewish person, to be excluded from the synagogue, was on some level to have one's access to God hindered, certainly to the religious life uh, that, that that involved. The encouragement comes then uh, toward the end of John chapter 9, when this formerly blind man actually comes to see Jesus for who he is, comes to faith in Jesus, while the Pharisees are revealed to be the ones who are blind. They're the ones who are spiritually blind. They don't see Jesus for who he is. They are spiritually blind for what, to what God is doing in and through Jesus. And that kind of thing is likely in the background as we engage this sixth prophetic word to one of the seven churches in Revelation church in the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is just under 30 miles from Sardis in last week's passage. 
And once again, each week we've been going through these five components of the prophetic messages. They tend to be in each of the, the prophetic messages, give or take one or two sometimes. Um, and the first one is Christ. The first component is Christ. This is where Jesus opens this prophetic word by identifying himself to the church. And he, and he, he uses a sentence or a phrase to tell who he is. So in verse 7 of chapter 3, it begins. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Now in the previous Five prophetic, I had to do math there, previous five prophetic words, um, when Jesus does this, when Jesus identifies himself, he always goes back to a sentence or a phrase that, is, that he borrows from when John first saw him in chapter 1. But now it appears as he gets to the sixth of the churches, he's used those all up. He doesn't go there. So he goes somewhere else. He identifies himself as him who is holy and true which is to say he is holy as God is holy, and he is the true Messiah. Jesus also says that he holds the key of David. That is a reference back to Isaiah 22, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah 22. There, in Isaiah 22, God speaks of Eliakim, who was to function as a steward over the palace, a sort of a second-in-command to King Hezekiah. The steward had ultimate authority on who and who did not have access to the palace. So in Isaiah 22, 22, he says of Eliakim, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. and What he shuts, no one can open. In, in Revelation 3, verse 7, Jesus quotes Isaiah 22, 22 almost verbatim. But here in Revelation, Jesus is speaking of his authority over the kingdom of God. He's speaking of his authority over the kingdom of God. Jesus will take this authority, and he's going to run with it in the next component of the message, commendation. Here's where Jesus talks about what they're doing well. After identifying himself as the one with the key of David, he says to them in, verses, in verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. These saints are not strong. That is, there aren't very many of them, and they don't have much power, much, much influence. N.T. Wright, scholar N.T. Wright, estimates that the number of Christians in Philadelphia at that time was only two or three dozen. This is a very small group of people. But the population of Jewish people in the, in the area was probably numbered in the thousands. They are not numerous. They are not strong. And yet they have remained faithful. They are the minority. They are the oppressed minority. And yet they have remained faithful. They have not given into the culture. They have not given into the pressures of empire. And they have paid the price. This is normally where Jesus would shift into the next component and offer a word of condemnation. Find something that they're not doing well and, and challenge them on it. But as was the case with the church in Smyrna, only two churches get this. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, there is no word of condemnation. They're doing well. So he moves on to the next component, which is challenge. 
Jesus' words of, words of challenge then, first take aim at those non-Christian Jews we talked about earlier, and he uses a phrase he used of a similar group who opposed the church in Smyrna. Again, back in chapter 2, verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, same phrase he used over in chapter 2, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, same thing he said in chapter 2, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. This small, fledgling community of Jesus followers, this, as small as they are, to quote George, General George Washington in Hamilton, they are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, and outplanned. But Jesus promises to make a move. He will not merely open the door. He's going to kick it down. <laughs> the more numerous, the more powerful non-Christian Jews were kicking Jewish Christians out of the synagogue. In the minds of first century Jews, as I said, they were shutting the doors and hindering, if not outright blocking, access to God on some very profound level, as they understood it. But Jesus will make those who have shut the door fall down at the feet of these Christians in humiliation and acknowledge that Jesus loves his followers. The one who holds the keys has placed before them an open door that no one can shut. The one who holds the keys has placed before them a door, an open door that no one can shut. As he did with the church in Smyrna, chapter 2, as I said, Jesus again refers to these non-Christian Jewish opponents as members of the synagogue of Satan. He, he says they think they're Jews, but they're not. Same thing he said, but then he adds to it. He calls them liars. He says, you are liars and you sit on a throne of lies. If Hamilton doesn't get you, Elf always will. When Jesus says that he loves his followers, he speaks of them the way that God spoke to the people of Israel in Isaiah 43. Whenever I put one of those up there, I have to have something coming up fast because you all just stare at the screen. (laughs) Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. The challenge component of this prophetic word continues. But now it's focused on the Jewish Christians. Verses 10 and 11. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Hold fast. Patiently endure and trust in two realities. Christ will come soon. And in the meantime, he will protect them from the hour of trial and suffering that is coming their way, which pretty much all the prophets believed that suffering and trial were going to be a part of things as they got nearer and nearer to the coming day of the Lord. In that time, Jesus promised, he will keep them safe. Several times in in Revelation, we are told that Jesus is coming soon. I thought it would be helpful to give you a rundown of where scholars land on what to do with this I am coming soon language when he didn't come soon the way we would have thought soon should be. Some of the scholars think that the writers of the New Testament thought Jesus would return sooner than he did, but they were mistaken. Excuse me. 
Some think that given the sort of space-time anomaly in which this vision took place, for Jesus to say he was coming soon made sense. In a place where time does not flow normally after all, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, and where John is seeing things from a very different cosmic uh, perspective that seems to ignore time and transports him far into the future. Jesus was indeed coming soon. Others suggest that Jesus is not referring to his final coming, but to the way that he comes to any of us at any time of need. Jesus is present in this room right now. Jesus is present with any of us who know him. He lives inside of us. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is here. Still others suggest that the word soon might really mean suddenly, when you don't expect it. Not necessarily referring to a specific time frame, or maybe time frame, maybe in some way it's actually little bits and pieces of all of this kind of put together. We don't really know. What we do know is that one day Jesus will return. And what we do know is that today Jesus is always with us. That he has the power to, to enable us and to empower us to hold on to what we have, to persevere, to endure, and to trust him in the process. And now Jesus is ready for the final component of this prophetic word to the church in Philadelphia. The conqueror's promise. What, what they're going to get because they have endured, because they have conquered, because they are victorious. And it's packed. And it's all contained in one verse, verse 12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. To those who have perhaps been kicked out of the synagogue and told they do not have access to God, Jesus promises rather that they will become a pillar in God's temple. While literal pillars and columns held up the physical construction of the, of the temple, the picture here is of the spiritual temple that the New Testament often refers to when it's talking of the church. And they don't mean the building, they mean the people. We are the temple, the new temple of God. So, so for example, speaking to Gentiles of their relationship with Jews, Jewish Christians, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19-22, that both Jewish and Gentiles are, are Christians are joined together to be, quote, become a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Jesus then takes this, this image of the temple and combines it with the way you and I, and it turns out they did too, the way you and I often uh, use the word pillar, when we say that someone is a pillar in the community or a pillar in the, of the church, we mean that they are people of influence, that they're, they're good, solid people. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, for example, Paul refers to James, Peter, and John as esteemed pillars. So I'm bringing all of this together, even though this synagogue wants to exclude them, and shut the door on them, these persecuted Christians are in fact important and influential people in God's temple. And they are to be honored. They are to be honored. Furthermore, Jesus adds, never again will they leave it. Never again will they be kicked out, excluded, or feel that they have been banned from access to God. And like a stone pillar that holds up the construction, they will be fixed. They will be immovable. They will be an integral part of the temple 
that God is building in and through Jesus and his followers. Never again will they be without a home. Never again will they be without God's presence. Now they will dwell with God and God will dwell with them. As I've said before, the early parts of Revelation are telling you what's coming. And when we get further on, you're going to see phrases and um, images and so forth that reach all the way back to the beginning. And what is being said here is a not-so-subtle nod to something that's going to come later in Revelation 21. John sees a vision of the future there, the, the, the way out there future, in which the new heavens and the new earth are made, and the holy city of God descends from heaven. John writes this in Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Back in Revelation chapter 3, not only will they become immovable pillars in the temple, not only will they receive a new home among God's people, but those who conquer them will be given three names. The name of God, the name of the city of God, New Jerusalem, in Jesus' own new name. <clears throat> this threefold act of naming communicates a, a fullness of belonging to God, belonging to God's city in the new creation, and belonging to God's Messiah. Those who are victorious, those who hold fast to what they've been taught and endure, will, will belong to God in the fullest possible way. The new name that Jesus refers to about himself is a name that As of yet, we don't know. It is not known by us. Why? Because until the time is right, maybe we simply are unable to comprehend the mystery, the beauty, the goodness, or the fullness of that name and what it means. As I said last week, this side of the new creation, there is no end to what we can know and experience of Jesus. Notice that these three names are not merely given to those who are victorious. They are written on them. They are written on them. In Revelation 7, when God symbolically seals 144,000 people, he places a seal on their foreheads, claiming them as his own and protecting them. Skipping over to Revelation 14.1, we are told that the seal on their foreheads was the name of the Lamb, Christ, and the name of the Father God. The triple names written upon those who are victorious in Revelation 3, verse 12, name the reality that we who have endured have been thrice sealed. We belong to God, always and forever, and no one can snatch us out of God's hand. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, Jesus has set a door open before us. A door granting access to God and leading us into God's presence, and this door can never be shut. What keeps you from more fully knowing and experiencing God? What What keeps you from knowing that nothing can keep you from God, from the love of God, and from the grace of God? The Apostle Paul writes in a famous passage in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
after acknowledging that to, to live on planet Earth is to encounter suffering and, and sin and temptation, Paul speaks of a reality that awaits us in the future. In verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. <clears throat> in light of our sufferings, then, and our weaknesses, Paul continues. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You and I are not opposed by people who say we have no access to God. But we may carry within inner shame, we may harbor unconfessed sin or believe false things about God that, that we allow to block us from truly receiving and enjoying God's grace and mercy. We might think that our own sin and weaknesses have shut the door that cannot be opened, but Jesus has opened a door that can never be shut. If there is anything standing in your way, something taunting you or telling you that you are not worthy, that, that you are not welcome, that you, that you are too sinful, that you are imperfect, that, that your life is too messy, those words come from the lips of a liar. We who have come to know and trust Christ have been thrice sealed. We are an integral part of God's holy temple. We are firm. We are steadfast. And by the grace of God, we are immovable. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this reality. That when we come to you by faith, when we acknowledge our own sinfulness and our need of your forgiveness and grace, when we cry out you, to you to, to save us, to, to empower us, to cleanse us, to heal us, you seal us, God. You throw the door wide open, a door that can never be shut. You make of us people who are immovable in your temple, in your kingdom. By God's grace, we pray that it would be so in our lives. We pray that we would know and access this truth like never before. And that the way we live our lives this day forward, as individuals, as households, and as a congregation, would bear witness to this reality. The reality that you are here. The reality that the door is open. 
and can never be shut, the reality that you enable and empower us to remain faithful, that your grace is sufficient when we fail, and that one day you will return. We pray all this in Jesus' name.